Welcome to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and I'm really excited to welcome Geraldine Gudefen and Mir Yarfis to the podcast today to talk about Mir's book, Impure Migration, Jews and Sex Work in Golden Age Argentina. Geraldine Gudefen is a scholar of modern Jewish studies currently teaching at American University, and she focuses in her research on migration, gender, and the intersection of law and religion in French and American Jewish history. Geraldine recently hosted an episode with Kirsten from Maglich, and we're really excited to have her back to share this episode with Mir Yarfitz, who is an assistant professor in the Department of History at Wake Forest University. Thank you so much, Jason. I'm very excited to talk with Mir about his book on Jewish prostitution, Buenos Aires. I was really interested in discussing two things with Mir in particular. The first one is the question of agency and really looking at sex work from the perspective of the workers themselves, particularly women, and the agency that they had in deciding to become sex workers. And one of the main themes of the book was the the topic of immigration and particularly the criminalization of immigration. So I'm very interested in how Jewish immigrants were criminalized through the lens of, of sex work and also what larger questions this raises about immigration today. Hi, Amir. Thank you so much for joining us on the Jewish History Matters podcast today. Welcome. Hi, I'm really excited to do this. I was fascinated by your book on Jews and sex work in Golden Age Argentina. And the first question that came to mind was actually about the subtitle itself. So you use the word sex work. And oftentimes when we read about this particular topic, the, the word that is used is prostitution. Can you tell us a, a little bit more about where you decided to go with sex work? The term sex work obviously is a deliberate choice and, and it's a political choice. The language of sex work started to be used coming out of the 1970s in the U.S. and in Western Europe and other places where people who were engaged in what they wanted to have called sex work, you know, kind of started organizing and pushing back against the sort of moralizing efforts. Obviously, the phrase sex work wasn't used during the time period that I'm writing about, the late 19th and early 20th century. I wanted to connect to later conversations about agency. So a lot of what I'm doing in the book is trying to shift narratives, sort of be able to see the agency of people whose, whose decision-making has often been not seen as actual decision-making. So that's one piece of it. The other thing about the idea of sex work is that it's something more than just what's sometimes thought of. Prostitution is maybe a more narrow concept, and sex work is something that can be much more broadly defined. So you could think about it as obviously including things like stripping, but in this case, we're also thinking about it in terms of owning brothels or you know, otherwise running brothels, otherwise being engaged in, in sex work without necessarily directly doing it. So actually, that brings me to the question of the actors in the book, because what you just alluded to is the fact that sex work is kind of an all-encompassing term that allude to a set of actors within this particular economic activity. I'd love to hear a little bit more about the different groups of actors uh, that you chose to focus on in, in the book. The cover of the book was chosen very deliberately, and it's this image of these mug shots from 1930 you know, as they were printed in a, in a local newspaper in Buenos Aires, of a bunch of men who were arrested in relation with what was often called at the time basically a Jewish pimps society. But the Varsovia Israelite Mutual Aid and Burial Society later changed its name to the Zvi Migdal Society. You know, it was an organization of 
mostly men, with some women who were involved in kind of managing sex work, often at higher levels. They were maybe involved in bringing women over from Eastern Europe. They were involved in owning brothels, sort of remodeling spaces so that they would fit changing brothel regulations, moving people around between the capital and the provinces. So a range of aspects of sex work. One of the things that I had to negotiate with the press was the the image on the cover of the book. And, you know, this wasn't made explicit to me, but they were like, hey, look at some other covers of other books that have dealt with similar topics. And it became very clear to me that pretty much every book that has been published about sex work, particularly historically, would usually have a picture of a naked woman, a half-naked woman. And I was like, oh, huh, I'm like actually too much of a second-wave feminist to put a naked woman on my book cover. And I kind of had to push back against that a little bit because I'm really trying to push back against the idea. I don't, I, first of all, I don't want to reify that gaze, but also I wanted to make sure the story I was telling was not one that repeated certain tropes about the women themselves. So when I'm talking about women themselves, I'm also, I'm framing them as actors, as immigrants, very much pushing back against sort of victimization narratives or ideas of women as trafficked. Right. And and that brings us back to the first question about sex work, because it's very obvious just from the subtitle, that's really what you're attempting to do by avoiding the, the term prostitution. When I was reading your book, I kept thinking about Sarah Abravaya Stein's book called uh, Plumes. In her book, she examines the central role that Jews played in the feather trade, particularly in South Africa, in the 19th, early 20th century. According to her, Yiddish-speaking traders comprise close to 90% of feather merchants in South Africa. So she really showed the centrality that Jews played in that particular economic activity. Your book reminded me of hers because similarly, you show that Jews in Buenos Aires uh, were very visible in a particular economic activity and in the, in the case that you're describing, sex work. Connecting these two books with one another, it seemed to me that the, the story that you're telling is a story of a transnational network of Jews who are seeking economic opportunities across the world. Sex work in this broader framework is, is a way to make a living, to earn a living. What I was wondering is what happens to this story of Jewish prostitution in Buenos Aires, which is a pretty well-known story, what happens to that story when we look at it from an economic perspective, when we see these people, these men and women whom you alluded to as economic actors, like, like any other actor in any other economic activity? What happens when we approach these historical actors from this particular economic perspective? Excellent question. And I love Sarah Stein's work. Yeah, certainly I was thinking about it as a story of international networks. And, you know, I really did try the best I could to use things like immigration records in databases and other things to try to trace the literal networks between people as they moved from Eastern Europe, often through Western Europe, and then into the Western Hemisphere. And certainly I was able to trace some of these roots, also connections between folks in New York and Buenos Aires, and sometimes in other places in Brazil. As I imagine we'll get to this, it's an area where it's, it's pretty hard to research for all the reasons that you might imagine. These are often folks who are, you know, they might be traveling with multiple names intentionally. But then there's also all the usual issues of immigrants going in and out of places where their names are, you know, they get transcribed in weird ways. They change their names, you know, so all of that stuff. 
thinking about the particular networks of Ashkenazi Jews, you know, there's been some interesting work on, on Ashkenazi Jews in sex work in Constantinople. I definitely found various data that suggested that Ashkenazi Jews in this time period played a predominant role in going in this other direction, this network of sex work going to the other side of the world, and particularly in Constantinople, which would have been largely a Sephardic center, that Ashkenazi Jews actually were certainly infamous there for running sex work as well, presumably for some of the same reasons. I mean, when I've had to pitch this book along the way to folks who were not comfortable with the subject for various reasons, you know, I've often had to explain, well, yes, Jews are overrepresented in this moment in Buenos Aires, and not only in sex work, it's it's sort of a particular time in, in Jewish life. You think about a group that obviously doesn't have as much education as Jews are later going to be able to get, that the various kinds of work skills that people have don't necessarily match up with the work skills and the places that they're going. Like, okay, well, what are people going to do? What do we have? Okay, well, you know, we have these networks, we have these connections. And in this case, what you see is some explicit organizing. So, for example, the Varsovia Mutual Aid and Burial Society was a legal organization, a legal mutual aid and burial society that was established in a suburb of Buenos Aires in 1906 that existed until 1930. So, it's sort of a hub or a node, right, of a network. But there are also other kinds of hubs and nodes. And I mean, these are some of the places where I feel like one can only get so far with historical research. The archives have a lot of gaps. Also, I spent a lot of time in the League of Nations archives because the League of Nations was very concerned with traffic in women. This is really the major women's issue internationally, aside from suffragists in the late 19th and early 20th century. So the League of Nations sent undercover investigators as well as above-ground investigators to various parts of the world in the mid-1920s, sort of investigating. They were trying to get at this question of, like, does legal prostitution, which is what much of this was based on the, the French model, trying to regulate public health, does legal prostitution facilitate other forms of, let's say, more dangerous prostitution, or what was then called white slavery or traffic in women? Does it facilitate traffic in minors? Does it encourage the exploitation of women? Often, though, this was a cover for really these moralizing efforts that were just, it was, it was usually conflated, right? They're, they were trying to get rid of all prostitution. I think by taking a more economic approach to this, you're actually able to kind of transcend those tropes that you find in the sources that you study, right? About white slavery, et cetera, et cetera. So framing this as, as an attempt on the part of Jewish men and women from Eastern Europe to earn a living helps us to go beyond the tropes of, you know, white slavery, women were being exploited by men, et cetera, et cetera. And you're, you're able to give them their agency through that particular framework. I was talking about how we might see different nodes in this network. One of the things I was trying to do and was able to do somewhat through the League of Nations records, as well as sort of tracing certain names, was that there would be individuals in certain places who knew a bunch of people, you know, a guy in Paris or in Marseille or somewhere else, you know, would then, through his personal networks, serve as a, a node. And this was something where they would, according to the League of Nations records, talk about a hevra. And it means various things, but like a community, a, a collectivity, a club. I found a kind of imperfect overlap. I think they were not talking about something formal. I think they were talking about 
people involved in this business. But then in certain places, they had more formal organizations like the Varsovia Society, or there was another organization, the Ashkenazim in Buenos Aires, the two kind of broke off from one another. And I think this reflects rivalries. This reflects people also being from particular hometowns. The Varsovia Society was originally named for Warsaw, where a bunch of its original founding members in the late 19th century were from. So in some ways, it functioned perhaps similarly to a a Landsmannschaft. One of the arguments that I'm making over and over again is sort of look how these individuals basically functioned and thought about themselves in the same way as other immigrants. And, you know, look, in some ways, this is not a particularly radical thing to be saying. But, you know, a lot of sort of implicitly moralizing people look at people who are involved in things that are sort of gray market or black market or criminal or sexual, you know, they end up really saying, well, these people are different from other people. Well, so that actually brings me to my next set of questions, which had to do with Jewish respectability politics, because this is really at the heart of the book. Immigrant Jews in Buenos Aires who were not part of this group involving sex work, how did they respond to the visibility of Jewish sex work in Buenos Aires? And when I was reading your book, I kept thinking about my own research, because what I did is look at immigrant Jews um, who came from Eastern Europe to New York in the early 20th century, and the ways in which their violation of New York civil and marital laws created great anxieties among the Americanized um, Jewish population who felt like they felt that these violations of civil law might get the entire Jewish community to trouble and also potentially restrict the immigration of Jews from Eastern Europe. And so what they attempted to do is to discipline the marital behavior of this immigrant community as a way to present the community as um, made up of good citizens or people who could become good citizens. And so it seems that that impulse that I saw in my research uh, is very much at play in the processes that you're describing. What I found particularly interesting in your discussion is that this Jewish respectability politics really worked on two different levels. So the first one is that you have um, community leaders who actively sought to distance themselves from the tamim, from the impure. So that's how they called people who were involved in in Jewish sex work. And they they tried to distance themselves, obviously, in in order to protect the reputation of the Jewish people. What I found even more interesting and, and perhaps more surprising is a second aspect of this respectability politics, which is that the Tme'im themselves tried to present themselves as upright Jews and citizens. For example, they they really attempted to present themselves as re- religiously oriented, honest businessmen, etc. I wanted to hear more from you about these two particular phenomena and how they relate to one another, and particularly the fact that the Tme'im themselves really try to show themselves as respectable citizens. I mean, I see a sort of dialectical relationship between the Jews who were trying to frame themselves as we are the good Jews. We hope that the rest of Argentina sees as Jews, right? The ones who were terrified that they might be tainted with the association between Jews and sex work, you know, was so powerful in in Buenos Aires at this time that, you know, words like the word Polaka, Polish woman, in both Argentina and Brazil throughout the 20th century, I mean, it implicitly meant prostitution or, you know, the term kaftan being used to talk about all pimps. And maybe this comes from the cult Jewish Orthodox men wear, maybe not, but the association between the two was very, very tight. And this is partially because, you know, as I find 
from looking at Argentine census data in the 1890s. There was already in the 1890s when the Jewish community had only just really begun, right? This is a much newer Jewish community than, let's say, the New York Jews. Even already at that time, when there were very few Jews, Ashkenazim were predominant and very visible in in sex work, right? And, you know, we have some stories of, you know, sort of flashy suits and women in furs kind of going and hanging out by the docks and kind of calling out to women as they come off the boats, trying to lure them right into this world and say, look, you've come here to make a living. This, this is the only way to escape poverty. You know, I don't know if that's exactly the way it went down, but in the book, I sort of map some sites of, of brothels and associated addresses. And in the 1890s, there was a block in the heart of the central downtown Jewish neighborhood, which has 200 Jewish women working in brothels on just one block. So it is tremendously, tremendously visible, certainly visible to other Jews. And then other Jews are, of course, very concerned that it is equally visible to everyone else. I mean, this is a city of immigrants, which most of the immigrants are from other, other parts of Europe, mostly Southern Europe, Italy, Spain. You know, certainly this is where m- most of the client base is coming from. But those groups are not as well organized in the arena of sex work. Sort of Jews are clearly overrepresented, as are the French. It's in part because they, they are less able to access other kinds of work. Again, so then this, this dialectical relationship evolves, where the Jews who are claiming themselves to be respectable, so they're saying, we're the good Jews, we have nothing to do with these other people. So then they would fight, they would fought over the Yiddish theater, they ally themselves with the police, which was a, a strange kind of alliance, because the police, you know, are profoundly anti-Semitic, just as an institution. So we see these sorts of alliances that the good Jews are, are trying to make to be sure that they're, they're separating themselves from these bad Jews. Obviously, this separation is probably not so clear to outsiders. This is part of why they begin to use the word, the word to maim, to talk about the whole issue. You know, this is in-group code. They want a way to talk about it without signaling to outsiders what it is that they're talking about. Sort of stories that I found about this subject, a lot of them were in the, the local Yiddish press. But, you know, the sort of more middle class sort of Jewish publication that emerges in Spanish doesn't talk about the issue at all, right? So they're very careful not to say anything in Spanish that others might hear. After the EMEA bombing in the mid-90s, which is for folks who don't know about Argentine Jewry in particular, this was this anti-Semitic bombing that happened of this central Jewish community center um, in Buenos Aires in the mid-1990s. You know, this was where the main community archives were located. And you know, many people were killed. This was a, a horrible, devastating tragedy. I talked to somebody at the current Jewish community archives there who said that she had gone and personally kind of rescued the few boxes of archival material that could be found that belonged to this organization, Ezra Nashim, the women's section that was the anti, kind of the anti-prostitution or anti-trafficking Jewish organization. And she said she took these boxes to make sure that they didn't fall into the wrong hands and hid them at her house and then brought them back when, when the archive was reestablished. And these were materials that very few researchers had, had been allowed to see. And when I was there, I wasn't allowed to take pictures of anything. The idea was, we, we know this story perfectly well around here. We should stop talking about it. But also, could you just not like spread it around anymore? That's the last thing that we need as a community. So did you did you experience explicit pushback from community members about researching this history? 
Yeah, you know, the, the idea is that this story has been kind of told enough, but as I said, it's very well known among Argentine Jews. And I think sort of scholars who specialize in Argentine Jewry are kind of like, yeah, could we just tell another story about these Jews, please? Like, this has been told enough. But to me, the problem is that it's often been a very narrow story that has been told, where the focus has been, in part, on a sort of defensive focus on those who fought against it, sort of saying, look, this stuff was happening, these bad Jews were doing this, but the really important thing here is that good Jews were working to save women from this fate. And then some mention of as a sort of a colorful footnote of maybe some aspects of, of the other side. But what I'm arguing is that this dialectical relationship between, you know, the Tameim and we could say the kosher Jews, that fight really shaped what this Jewish community was, because it was a core fight that was happening from the beginning, from the establishment of this community. And it may even have had something to do with how this community became so very centralized as these different institutions consolidated. I'm actually curious to hear more about how this early experiences of this Jewish immigrant community in Buenos Aires shaped what became the Jewish community in Buenos Aires. So you just mentioned centralization, but other aspects of this community that really was shaped in that dialectical relationship that you just discussed. This chapter closed in the 1930s, right? The major closing point, I would say, was with this big court case in 1930 that kind of ended the Varsovia Mutual Aid Society, the Pimps Mutual Aid Society, or the Zvi McDowell. After that, the people who were involved in that organization, some of them went to jail for a little while. Then they were released and kicked out of the country. Other people, you know, who knows where they went? Certainly some people blended in in some way. And I don't know, I imagine there are families where the history is sort of half known. Uh, that was not an arena where it felt like sort of worthwhile to me to try to dig up oral histories, right? Given that people didn't really want to talk about this stuff. It's not that I think it explicitly shaped later kind of Jewish community development, but the fact that the, the earliest years were really stamped by this fight between respectable and disreputable Jews, certain kinds of defensiveness. I think the sort of the consolidation of, of organizations, you know, look, some Jewish communities are just more centralized than others. So there was this moment around when the court case was happening in 1930 when a bunch of these different Jewish community institutions that had previously been, they weren't really working together. They kind of were like, oh, well, we can all get together on this one, right? We can all kind of fight together on this. And I think it was sort of one of the places where various institutions that in, sometimes fought against one another, and certainly there were, I saw stuff in the archives that some of the other organizations very much resented some of the things that the, the anti-prostitution organization would do in, in claiming to speak for the larger collectivity. Um, they were like, who, really, who are these people? Right. And then it's a conflict for authority, right, within the Jewish community. It raises the question of who within the Jewish community is, is qualified or has the authority to speak on behalf of, of everyone else within the community. Yeah. And in this early period, there wasn't much religious authority, right? There were very few rabbis, certainly for a long time. At the beginning, there was nobody who was really recognized as really rabbinical authority, right? So that was also part of what was going on, is that you didn't have that clear religious authority. And then this question of marriage, that as you brought up, it connects to your own work. You know, this was one of the sites where kind of the state and the Jewish community also were getting together to try to regulate people's behavior. After this court case in 1930, certainly in the mid-1930s, 
this Ezra's Nashim, right, the women's section, the Jewish um, anti-prostitution organization, they tried to kind of posit themselves as moral gatekeepers for future matches, for future marriages, for the future Jewish generations. And we're like, we need to really check that people haven't been involved in the past in sex work for the bride and the groom. They were also involved in kind of regulating marriages of people who came in new immigrants, right? But they were trying to say, look, we will help to assure a clean break with this past. The second side, I agree, is is really fascinating. So how was it that the Tameim themselves asserted their own respectability in two ways, as Jews and as Argentines? As Jews, from the beginning, the respectable Jews wouldn't allow those who were tainted, right, Tameim, ritually unclean, to bury their dad sort of in the Jewish cemetery. This was sort of the foundation of this pimps mutual aid society was seeking a burial society in some ways. I believe they were also they were also probably doing business stuff together beyond that. And this is when they end up making an alliance with the Sephardic Jews who were maybe less able to be picky, right? And so they worked together to create a Jewish cemetery that was separate from, you know, where the Ashkenazim were burying with a separation between the sort of Sephardim, and the Tameim. But then I saw some later photographs, which again, I was not able to take pictures of, unfortunately, of the cemetery. But there were some printed in the newspapers. You can see, for example, a sort of large menorah decorating the front gate of this pimps and prostitutes cemetery. So they're saying to the world, this is a Jewish cemetery. And everyone, of course, knew what else was happening. They were flaunting it, right? They were definitely not hiding it. They were claiming their Jewishness. And this was in part kind of pushing back against the other Jews as much as it was saying it to everyone else. The document that I was most excited to discover was a annual financial report that was created by the Varsovia Society itself in 1926 and 1927 for its members. And it just happened to survive in one of these boxes of the Ezra Nashim. So it's kind of an annual financial report in Yiddish and Spanish. One of the things that it, it suggests is that there was some kind of Yom Kippur service that was held, that they held for themselves, for their members. And, and at that service, just as other Jews would pledge charitable donations for Yom Kippur, they also pledged charitable donations on Yom Kippur. Some of these was to sort of decorate this mansion that they had collectively bought to use as sort of fancy headquarters in a fancy neighborhood. Some of it was for kind of widows and orphans benefits. Some of it included low benches for sort of burial services, sitting shiva. They included prayer books. They included sort of ritual decorations. There are some photographs of a space that, you know, that they were using as a synagogue space that appears to have had an ark with a tour in it, I didn't see the picture of an actual tour, but it was very clearly an ark with a sort of covering on it, with lions embroidered on it, with pews. And it very much appeared that they were holding religious services. Another way of understanding this is like, they saw themselves, again, as other Jews. And this was beyond like, you know, what you see in the Godfather movies where, you know, they're like, this is a legitimate business. I don't know to, to what extent, I think in some of the conversations that I could sort of get into people having through the undercover research of the the League of Nations researcher, you know, some of them are maybe a little disingenuous when they're talking about it as a business, right? They obviously understand the social norms, but other people are like, yeah, I mean, this is a business like other businesses. It is actually 
much of what they're doing is is legal, is within the law. They saw themselves also as a higher moral standard. The, the men did who were doing it often at least would speak of having a higher moral standard in the way that they treated the women involved, right? They said, we deal with Jewish women. We don't hit them. We're not violent to them. Not like, let's say, those Spanish and Italians. Why would we do that? Why would we damage the merchandise, right? That's not a good business decision. Right. I love how they're framing it as a business reason for not doing that. I mean, there's a moral element, which is, oh, we treat our women nicely or better than other groups. But also they're framing it as a, as an economic reason for doing so, which I find absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Why would we damage our merchandise? There are better ways of getting women to do what you want, right? And they also talk here about sort of romantic love, right? Which is a thing that I talk about in the book where when we think about, again, the women involved, we have to think about the limitations on their choices, sort of back in the old country and as migrants, right? How much decision-making power, how many choices did they have? in their romantic relationships, in their marriages. And they were definitely involved in this scene. When we think about the relationship between like traditionally a, a pimp and a prostitute or a, you know, a trafficker and a trafficked woman, we're thinking about these coercive sort of power imbalances. But there also are relationships that come through in these sources, you know, just as now, which are, are far more complicated and involve affective ties. And they're often talked about as relationships between husbands and wives, whether or not people are also legally getting married, there's a lot of what I talk about is kind of dyadic relationships in which the work is performed. And there's discussions about how if a woman is kind of paired up with a guy and she wants to change him for somebody else, the organization will facilitate that, right? Because if she's happy, again, as an economic sort of decision, things will go more smoothly. Various aspects of how folks in this organization asserted their identity as Jews, to themselves, to one another. You know, I mean, certainly there's other work talking about how, you know, there was work at the time and, and there's certainly been work since about how, you know, in some cases people in sex work might, I don't know, be more religious than other people or are, maybe they're trying to cleanse themselves of their sense of being morally tainted. We only can get so far on the ground with like what was actually happening in the religious services or how religious were people really. There's a lot of gaps here in the, in the actual data. This is all pretty suggestive. Based on what you described about kind of the makeup of this community, it seems like the um, there's something different between the case that you've studied and the case that I've studied, which is that in New York, there's definitely a bit of an element of downtown Jews versus uptown Jews. This divide is not as stark as some people have, have described it, but uh, there's definitely a sense that a lot of the people who are involved in these organizations to police discipline that the marital behavior of immigrants are themselves not immigrants, right? There are people with parents, grandparents came from Central Europe. And at that point, by the time this mass immigration is unfolding, they're very Americanized. They're generally better off than this immigrants. So they're, they're both cultural and socioeconomic divides. It seems that in your case, the lines are blurred more because everyone within this community is more or less an immigrant. Is that correct? You know, I mean, I am looking a across more than one generation, but you don't have the uptown, downtown Jewish divide or, or people coming from different regions. This is a Jewish community that really doesn't begin to grow until 1880s, 1890s, and then kind of with peak growth really in the 1920s, and then reduces after that. So yeah, there's much more of a compression, a sort of generational compression. But part of what you're seeing, though, is as, as people are kind of increasingly establishing themselves 
they want control over who's coming next, or they want to make sure that the people are coming next, right? They're very afraid that Argentina will stop allowing in, you know, as Argentina following the US model in the 1920s of increased immigration restriction, you know, does begin to restrict immigration. But Argentina had been a nation that was trying to use this European immigration flow as a way of building up, whitening, Europeanizing its population. This might be an interesting point to talk about sort of Jewish whiteness, right? And and how that, in some ways similar, in some ways quite different from the U.S. context. I actually had a question that bridges the theme of Jewish respectability politics and the question of whiteness and race. Because you, you mentioned that the Tamim shared a cemetery with Moroccan Jews. I was wondering what role Sephardi Jews played in that story more generally, and if they were involved in this respectability politics. And then a related question is whether non-Jewish Argentines were aware of the differences between Ashkenazi and Sephardi Jews. And this brings me to the question of what role did whiteness play in that story? And also, how does the Argentine story in particular help us understand the question of race in the Americas writ large, kind of beyond the, the American context in that time period? Yeah, so starting with the Sephardic question in Argentina, Adriana Brodsky's wonderful recent book, uh, Sephardi Jewish Argentine, talks about the Sephardic community in Argentina. And I mean, my understanding is that there was quite a gap between Sephardic and Ashkenazi Jews seen both internally and externally. Sephardi more often called Turcos, Turks, and, and seen as, as quite distinct, both from by other Jews and by the, the larger Argentine community, right? They weren't, my understanding is they were not doing things together. Uh, so they were seen in a very, very different way. Now, interestingly, more recently, you know, just in the last couple of decades, as the Sephardic community over time, you know, did really organize itself and claim Jewish identity, right? And eventually has kind of taken over running the sort of main centralized Jewish institution in Buenos Aires, in Argentina. But yeah, no, at the time, my understanding is these were seen as, as very distinct groups, both internally and externally. For both of them, racialization played out in ways, to me, are, are much more Latin American than U.S., by which sort of the meaning of whiteness was obviously taken in some ways similar and in some ways different ways with these migrant flows from Europe to the Americas. But the literature on the formation of Jewish whiteness, along with other, let's say, less desirable immigrants in the U.S., you know, you sort of see the Jews, the Irish, the Italians, etc., kind of becoming white, but that's being contested as sort of against other more desirable or whiter immigrants in the U.S. Now, Argentina, though, is a nation of pretty much all of the immigrants that are coming at this time were falling into the sort of less desirable Southern and Eastern European countries. I mean, there were some German immigrants that was a, a small population, but generally they're these, these Southern and Eastern Europeans, right? On one level, like all of these folks are seen by the Argentine government as more desirable than the small sort of indigenous population that, that had existed and largely been wiped out, or you know, the small Afro-Argentine population that, again, had existed in many ways was wiped out. You know, all of these groups were to some degree seen as, okay, well, like they wanted to Europeanize. It was, it was an imperfect fit with what these sort of arcs of modern Argentina were hoping for. But certainly the Jews were under more suspicion than, let's say, the Spanish and Italian immigrants you know, at least they were Catholic, speaking 
Spanish or speaking another, you know, sort of intelligible Latin language. You certainly see things in conversations around immigration, you know, in the 1890s, they're really debating, like, should we be letting in these Jews? Are they assimilable? Are they different from these other groups? Is this possible? So I'm thinking here about the idea of, I talk a lot in the book about the concept of white slavery. So the concept of white slavery starting in the 1870s, but sort of really taking off in the sort of the last years of the 19th century and then into the 20th century as a way, the sort of international moral panics about white slavery. And you see in the U.S. and in Western Europe in particular, sort of a way of responding to these massive population movements, whether it's from rural to urban areas or from certain parts of the world to others, but often going from kind of colonial societies to what had been colonies or post-colonial societies with the fear that maybe women who are increasingly seen as white would be mixing racially with men who are not. What would be the future of like these various races if white women were going to lands with men of other races and reproducing with them or having sex with them? These kind of moral panics around white slavery, they were not reflecting a reality of like, that wasn't actually happening, right? There weren't thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of European women kind of being kidnapped and forced into prostitution. But that story kept getting told over and over and over again. So one of the things I look at in the book is, why did that story keep getting told? And again, over decades, that story just kept getting told and told and told. Why did it have such traction? when that wasn't really what was happening. To me, this very much has to do with the articulations of whiteness, because the idea was that the term white slavery very much comes explicitly out of the abolition of African chattel slavery. Often it's some of the same people who had been part of the abolitionist movement, and then they're like, okay, well, we're finally done with that. What are we going to do now? Oh, here's another similar thing that you know we are also concerned with. But often the way that it's phrased is, there's an implication that black slavery is the natural order of things, and white slavery is this kind of categorical impossibility. You can't have a white slave because whiteness means freedom. That's the definition of the term. And you know, you even see these conversations happening where the implication is this is even worse than that other form of slavery because in the U.S., this is the you know the period when obviously the sort of black men raping white women is this central of the Reconstruction, post-Reconstruction period. I'm arguing this internationally, this conversation about white slavery is sort of echoing often implicitly these other kinds of border monitoring, right? So I also kind of map out where the League of Nations was most concerned with white slavery or what they began to call the traffic in women. They're most concerned at certain kind of border crossing points, right? They're not they're not going to Chicago, which was like a city with a ton of prostitution. You know, they're going to the Mexican border. They're looking at, you know, sort of crossing points where they want to make sure that the right kind of immigration is happening. Right? That's part of what they're talking about um, implicitly often. They want to make sure, though, that various kinds of, of racial purity are being monitored. Now, because of some pushback against the term white slavery, like Emma Goldman was among the first to say, we shouldn't call this white slavery because actually a lot of this international prostitution 
is women from Asia. Obviously, there are Black women involved in this. There are women of all different races. Let's not call it white slavery. And so the League of Nations and other organizations eventually, after World War I, really start picking up the language of trafficking. What they're actually looking at is the same thing. The story that's being told is still the same as the white slavery narrative, where it's really the story is that, you know, women are getting kind of duped or kidnapped or their families are being kind of duped. And this story, again, is told over and over again, in part as a way of making sense of, in some ways, the women's side of this major labor migration. I mean, I don't think it's completely overstating the case to say that a good percentage of women who were migrating in this period of mass migration, what were the labor opportunities available to them? And sex work was going to be certainly one of the most lucrative things they could do. Did they know that's what they were getting into? I mean, I sort of followed on what I can tell in some of the data. Some people had been previously practicing as they'd gone from sometimes rural to urban areas. Some of them were already sex workers. And then they were like, oh, I'll go do this somewhere more lucrative. Maybe other people were not completely sure what they were getting into, but they needed to be doing something other than what they were doing, right? And it's sort of limited choices, as opposed to thinking about consent as like a black or white issue. It's another piece that I've sort of gotten from more recent analyses of sex work and sort of seen, oh yeah, this, this clearly was how it played out in the past as well. Right. And so what I find really interesting in, in this discussion of, of white slavery in your book, and particularly on the discussion of whiteness, is the way that the racial question interacted with issues of gender. For instance, Jewish women were involved in sex work, were very much described as white, whereas the Jewish pimps were seen as, you know, dark, exotic, racially foreign men. Even though, obviously, both the sex workers and the pimps were really part of the same ethnic background. But that trope of the white slave really uh, allowed for differentiating between the racial identity of Jewish women and that of Jewish men. You see that in our national conversations about immigration, where when this sort of the terrifying immigrant man is racialized, right? I mean, if immigrant women are talked about at all, right, they're not necessarily being racialized in the same way. It's a similar conversation where the implication is that these bad hombres who are coming here, are re- they're coming to rape our white women, right? They're all of reproductive age. That, to me, is very much a trope that, that sticks around to this day. The imagined story would have been that Jewish men and other kind of swarthy men would have been kidnapping white Christian women. But yeah, on the ground, the networks were within linguistic, ethnic, and religious groups, right? That's, that's not what was happening. So one of the ways that the kosher Jewish community was sort of also reiterating over and over again, these are our women who are being exploited. Right, to sort of take them back from this sort of the broader international imagination, which was that it was sort of white women, maybe by implication Christian, who were being trafficked. But you know, I think in these tropes, the slipperiness of Jewish race then became useful in various ways. And that was why Jewish women could be kind of whitened by this and Jewish men darkened. I actually want to continue the conversation and kind of orient it towards the bad hombres that you were mentioning, because I found your book so extremely timely because of the ongoing debates that we have in the United States about immigration. And particularly in this current political context, we have a discursive criminalization of immigrants. 
which is obviously something that resonates with the time study that you look at. It seemed to me that in some ways, your book was a, a rebuttal to the ideas of someone like Stephen Miller. So Stephen Miller was Jewish, an American Jew, was Donald Trump's uh, advisor on immigration. And Stephen Miller, to the dismay of many American Jews, has originated a number of Donald Trump's most controversial policies regarding immigration. And uh, one of them that comes to mind is, of course, the, the separation of, of migrant families. The reason I'm, I thought about Stephen Miller while reading your book is that one of the core ideas behind the policies that is promoting is the notion that there's something called good immigration and then there's bad immigration. And there are good migrants and bad migrants. And this perspective is not really surprising coming from someone like Miller, who was a far-right ideologue. But it, it strikes me that while many and perhaps most American Jews are, are very much appalled by the fact that Miller himself is, is Jewish and that someone was Jewish has been as, at the forefront of such anti-immigrant rhetoric. So despite being appalled by Miller, I find that subconsciously many American Jews do assume that Jewish immigration was, quote unquote, good in contrast to that of other ethnic groups. What I mean by that, when American Jews think that immig Jewish immigration was good, is that they see the immigration of their ancestors to the U.S. through uh, certain very commonly held ideas. So, for instance, the fact that Jews came for, quote-unquote, the right reasons. So there's this very common understanding that Jews came to America because they were fleeing pogroms. So oftentimes, the economic incentives for, for migrating to the U.S. is very much, much obscured in the kind of family narrative of why Jews came to America. And then there's also the widespread notion that, oh, Jews came here legally. I mean, that's kind of assumed that Jews came here legally and, and that, that that's why they are good migrants. And of course, there's also the idea that Jewish immigrants were model citizens. They contributed positively to the American economy and society. Those kind of the, the subconscious ideas that many American Jews hold about Jewish immigration to the U.S. In the, at the turn of the 20th century. Of course, when you look at it from a historical perspective, all of this becomes much more murky. There have been a number of histories in the recent decades or recent years that have dispelled some of this myth about Jewish immigration. So for instance, uh, Gina Weissman Jocelyn has worked on Jewish crime in New York. Or more recently, you have Libby Garland's book on illegal Jewish immigration to the United States. That kind of debunks the idea that all Jews came to the U.S. legally, right? My question to you is, can you walk us through how the idea that Jewish immigration was a good one developed about American Jews, if you have any sense of how that's the case? And again, you're more familiar with the Argentine case, so you might not have answers to this, but is this an idea that you see in the Argentine Jewish context today? So in, in the discussions about immigration in Argentina today, or is there a similar idea that Jewish immigration was good? And, and if so, how does the, the historical visibility of Jewish sex in Buenos Aires conflicts with those notions. Yeah, really interesting combination of things that you just brought up. So, I mean, I can't really give you a genealogy of the idea of sort of good versus bad immigrants in either U.S. or Argentine Jewish populations. But, you know, I often say to my students, you know, I teach about sort of Latin American and U.S. history in connection with one another and, and try to connect it to current events. And, and I ask them about their own family histories you know, I'm like, well, if your family came here from some part of Europe before 1924, you know, did you all come here legally or illegally? And they're like, well, yeah, we came here legally. And I'm like, no, there was no legal or illegal in that case, right? You just showed up. You know, you might have been quarantined if, you know, you had an eye infection or something like that. But 
you know, I sort of explain how these these policies develop. I mean, similarly in Argentina, with these, they had these you know tremendously open borders, which again they they followed the U.S. in closing right into the 1930s. But you know, the idea of these immigrant groups as sort of model citizens who who made only positive contributions, these sort of defensive articulations of you know you, you have to say both these immigrants did not come here for economic reasons; they came here fleeing persecution. But you know, you still have the idea on the ground that like obviously these were poor people who came to try to achieve the American dream. And you have a similar articulation in Argentina of Acer la America, like, you know, making making it in America, it's a similar kind of idea that there were opportunities in Argentina that there, you know, that didn't exist back in the old country. So I think you always had this kind of double consciousness about like, yeah, obviously people were coming because they were poor. And yeah, maybe they were fleeing pogroms or maybe it was just anti-Semitism was everywhere. But, you know, I think the idea that people could just come for economic reasons, I don't know if that's always been like as as fraught as it is in the sort of current conversations about separating folks seeking asylum, folks seeking economic opportunity. I, I don't think that was really the case in work that I've read on, on Argentine immigration in the early 20th century. It seemed to me that people were, that it was fine to come for economic reasons. But then what does that mean? What were the avenues of possible success? You're not going to go into the priesthood if you're a Jew. The land was kind of rough. I mean, you may have heard about the Jewish gauchos and attempted settlements of Jews in rural Argentina. That stuff didn't go very well, right, for a range of reasons. There wasn't a huge garment industry. So, you know, a lot of Jews initially in Argentina were going to be basically street peddlers selling used clothing, these kinds of things not real high status, not real. I don't think that's what people were like hoping they were going to be doing. So then when you had these opportunities around the sex industry, for example, people were like, oh, that seems a little bit better than pushing carts around the street, right? Right. I mean, you're operating within a framework of limited economic opportunities. You know, which again shifted as Jews were increasingly able to get education, just like other groups. I mean, the story of Argentine economic development is, is quite different than the story of U.S. economic development. Often there's the, the sort of narrative of Argentine history is often one of like, oh, Buenos Aires and New York were in many ways similar in the early 20th century. But then Argentina kind of failed as the U.S. succeeded. And often people will look to beginning with the dictatorships that began in the 1930s, in, in 1930, and then sort of continue into Peronism. And later sort of, okay, well, Argentina failed for these various political and economic reasons. And thus, the kinds of opportunities that were available in Argentina were different than in you know, a more robust economy and a more diverse economy like in the U.S. Folks coming and becoming criminals, right, sort of work on Jewish crime. You know, it's interesting. I feel like, like why has there been this romanticization, at least among some groups of, let's say, Italian crime? I feel like the story of the sort of Jewish criminal past has not gotten traction in certain ways nowadays in the U.S. When I talk to people about this work, they're just like, what are you talking about? Like, it doesn't make any sense to them, in part because it just doesn't line up properly with, like, Jewish stereotypes. Whereas in Argentina, the sense is that this story has been told way too much already. Folks want a different story. One of the things that I talk about in the book that I think is related to this is sort of narratives of victimization. So I think, like, sort of current stories about Folks seeking refugee status, seeking asylum, maybe they're 
they're victims, right? So they're not just seeking a better life in some selfish way, but they're actual victims who thus deserve another chance. And I thought a lot about these kind of victim narratives in writing this book. So narratives of trafficked women as having been victimized, or, you know, women in in sex work as being inherently victimized. One of the ways that I engaged with this was in saying, look, since the 1970s, you know, folks who are engaged in sex work have said over and over again, we don't want to be thought of as victims. Like there are some things that are really not great about this whole line of work. A lot of it is because of the way that we are treated by police, because it's illegal. Let's think about it as labor and then think about making it better in terms of kind of labor regulation. Folks who've been writing recently about sex work and migration in the current moment said things like the stuff that makes life especially difficult and dangerous for people we might call trafficked or people we might call immigrant sex workers, it often has to do with their immigration status. So if they're undocumented, their lives are much more difficult and dangerous than if they're not. So the the issues are these larger systemic issues, not that they are you know, inherently being victimized by sex work itself. And here I want to make the connection to current trafficking organization. You may or may not know this, but today, you know, there's these major international organizations that deal with trafficking, largely sex trafficking. These are often organizations that are funded by the religious right. And trafficking is a very juicy issue for them because, you know, you, you have the perfect victims. You can tell these very dramatic stories. But there has been a lot of pushback from sex worker rights organizations against these anti-trafficking organizations. And there's just so many parallels between how these organizations act, their messaging, and what was going on with anti-trafficking work a century ago. Really the, the same kinds of messages, um, the same stories. And the same responses. And the responses are ultimately, how do they play out? They tend to play out by the punishment falls upon the most vulnerable, generally on women or nowadays on falling on transgender sex workers, you know, particularly people who are not white, right? Or folks who don't have documents. I mean, that's always where the burden of this stuff falls. It's very rarely like some high level powerful pimp or trafficker is very rarely taken down and was very rarely taken down a century ago. So what opponents of anti-trafficking today have said is like, people don't need to be saved. They need like systems to change. They need a range of options. They need to not be marginalized by all the ways that these larger systems marginalize people. But these sort of savior efforts, they really don't work, but also they, they direct attention in the wrong place. Right. And, and they, again, contribute to the criminalization of immigrants, and including immigrant women. Yeah, including immigrant women including transgender immigrants. And again, the problems are just magnified if people are living outside of sort of legal structures. What's really interesting in what you just said is kind of drawing the parallels between what happened in the early 20th century in Argentina and what, what we see today happening, especially in the U.S. Hearing about these parallels brings me to the question of what you think uh, your role, our role is as historians in those very fraught, heated debates on immigration in the U.S. today. Do you see yourself as having a role to play, you know, beyond the academy itself? Like, who do you hope is going to read your book? 
this is an academic book. It's a first book. I'm thrilled if anyone who I don't know personally reads this book. My hope is that this book is useful in conversations, yeah, about contemporary trafficking, about immigration, about you know, sort of how different communities form in different places, about race and whiteness, you know, obviously about Jewish history more broadly. And in that arena, you know, Latin America is often marginalized. You know, I am trying to also engage with folks who are scholars of, of Jewish history, certainly in the U.S., but, you know, also in other parts of the world saying, let's look at Latin America also as an, an interesting site of Jewish life. A lot of these questions about migration and mobility, I think, are, are just, to me, it's, I mean, they're timely, but they're timely because they're, they're kind of activated right now and internationally and, you know, in part because we have these major shifts, which are going to only increase caused by climate change, right? These major population movements and the kinds of anxieties that we have as societies, like we're responding to them in ways that are just so similar to what we were doing a hundred years ago. So I think if we can really look at ways in which these responses have not served people that, you know, particularly if we're like, we see ourselves as people who want to, I don't know, reduce suffering or create systems that are more just, like we have to look at we're making the same mistakes over and over again for 100, 150 years, it can be helpful to look back and be like, oh, okay, well, we tried that policy. This is what happened, you know, using the past as like a laboratory, you know, what happens when we do that thing. I've engaged in some conversations around sort of current anti-Semitism also. To me, the, the connection between the racialization issues in the past and today and larger white supremacist trends is a very important connection to underscore. I've done a couple of kind of public talks in the last year, you know, in, in response to these attacks, these synagogue attacks. And so sort of doing it as a historian and saying, look, here are these historic anti-Semitic tropes that are very much what is being activated today. But let us make sure that we think about them and fight them connected to all the other aspects of white supremacy, and let us not underscore Jewish exceptionalism when we respond to this. For example, with, with the Pittsburgh shooting, I was sort of trying to make sense out of why did this guy particularly go after this kind of lefty synagogue and not a place where, I don't know, there would have been more Jews there, something like this, right? So he didn't do it, he didn't do a ton of research, but he did know about Hyas. So I was like, oh, Hyas, yeah, huh, I've come across you know, highest archives in the past, like this has to do with immigration. And, you know, so I kind of dug into it a little bit and I was like, oh, okay. So the certain disgusting corners of the far right nowadays are blaming Jews. The Jews are the masterminds of bringing black and brown bodies across borders for white racial genocide, foundationally because it's, it's the cunning of the Jews that is needed because these black and brown folks are not smart enough to organize themselves. So they need the Jews to sort of do this, this work. So much of this is like resonates with these sort of long ago stereotypes, except, you know, obviously certain details shift. You know, I've talked about this with folks in public. And I'm just like, if we think about this in the broader context of like white supremacy, you know, it allows a much broader range of coalition building in fighting these things than if we see these things as exceptional. To me, it's an exciting place to make common cause across various issues, looking at this history. But you know, we also have to look very honestly at power differentials and how 
the role of the Jews and Jewish whiteness today is also very different than it was in the world 100 years ago. We have to keep that in mind when we are having these conversations. I feel like you're actually providing a glimmer of hope (laughs) by thinking about the ways in which we can use history to build alliances with other groups who are really fighting against the current criminalization of, of immigrants. And this is making me somewhat hopeful, actually. I'm really glad to hear that. I mean, I certainly wouldn't want anyone to read my book and feel more depressed. That's all we need now. <laughs> That's right. Mira, I don't think we have that much time, but I, I did want to end on a few questions about something you just evoked, which is the relationship between Jewish studies and Latin American studies. I wanted to ask you, how can Latin American studies enrich our understanding of the modern Jewish experience? And, and conversely, what aspects of Latin American history can the Jewish immigrant experience shed light on? The book sort of straddles you know, Jewish history or Jewish studies, you know, Latin American history slash studies and gender and sexuality studies. And I don't know if I could have written this book if my primary field had been Jewish history, because first of all, like the Latin American stuff is already kind of marginal because the larger field. I think the stuff around gender and sexuality was more kind of at the center of Latin American studies scholarship than, than Jewish studies. I feel like there's a way to me in which Jewish studies has been slightly behind in, in dealing with gender and sexuality. And certainly like when I've had these conversations about sex work, about trafficking in more Jewish studies rooms, as opposed to, let's say, Latin American studies rooms, like Jewish studies folks are more reluctant and defensive to engage with some of this stuff and sort of haven't internalized certain kinds of queer theory stuff or developments in feminism, this kind of thing. And obviously, there's a ton of work that is doing other things. But to me, it's it's a little bit behind. Thinking about Latin America as another sort of central place of where Jews are and have been, but also have been relating to other groups of folks in complicated ways. What does it mean for Jews to settle in largely non-white places? Argentina doesn't actually give that case. Argentina is a pretty white place compared to other places, as opposed to Jewish settlement in in Mexico or you know in Brazil or in parts of the Caribbean. Those you know those are going to be slightly different stories. I don't know the sort of national history. In Jewish history, we often are like implicitly more transnational, but then I feel like often we still get hardened into national sites. The kinds of like conversations, the ways in which Jews have understood themselves as diasporic people, but not only looking towards Israel, right, but also looking back to Eastern Europe or looking back to other places of origin, looking sort of across, right? You know, thinking about kind of a more multipolar kind of system. Right, where people are, are just having conversations in a much broader range of directions, sort of really shifting the center of gravity. You know, and certainly, I mean, Argentine Jews became generally very, very Zionist, and there's been, you know, a lot of Argentine Jews have moved to Israel, particularly in recent decades, you know, with economic issues being what they've been in Argentina. But yeah, I just feel like any time we can kind of be having different conversations, it's going to serve us. Thinking about Jewish history in a Latin American context, often these larger questions of who really is a citizen, who really is Argentine or Mexican or Brazilian or Latin American, and what does this mean for other populations that have historically been economic engines, but not really included in the larger citizenry? You know, but I I guess I also just feel like, yeah, I mean, you, you can learn stuff from Jewish history about other groups. 
but you also have to look at those other groups. <laughs> like, I also don't want to overstate the case of like, what do we learn from looking at the history of Jews about indigenous populations? But yeah, these larger questions of like, yeah, who is a citizen? Who is a valuable worker? What do people have to do in order to be part of a society? To what extent are things that are also not considered like traditional market activities or are still very much shaping what societies are? We can broaden our look at what is a market and what is a society to really include all of the things that are actually going on. We get very different visions of what societies are. Mir, thank you so much. This is just so wonderful. Are there any final thoughts? One of the things that I struggled with throughout the book was finding traces in the archives of the voices that I really wanted to listen to. I wanted to listen to the voices of these sex workers themselves. And there were so few places where their voices could be registered or preserved sort of in the structures of these institutions and the structure of the archive itself. I often felt like as close as I could get to the voices of these individuals was always through some, some state intervention, through a court, through the police, through you know, an immigration system, or through these, these international organizations like the League of Nations. I mean, you know, in some cases through newspapers. But when I think about like, what is it that we want to do like, as historians, when we're trying to sort of listen to the broadest possible range of voices and think about what they're saying might shift like, our larger narratives. And often I was, the frustrations that all of us who do some form of social history have, which is we're limited by what is recorded. I'm curious about what happens in the future when people are looking back at this sort of digital age where we have, in some ways, many, many more voices are in some way like leaving traces. I don't know what happens like in a hundred years, if we can look back at Twitter or something, like will we even be able to read it? Maybe people will in the future be able to hear people telling their own stories in a much broader range of ways with sort of current technologies and forms of record keeping. And, and I hope so. And I hope that people are able to hear those voices in ways that are maybe less mediated by other actors who are just really trying to, to get people to tell certain stories. So often what I'm doing in this book is, is interpreting and reinterpreting stories that are all just being told for these very particular purposes. And then being like, okay, well, what if I read it against the grain in this way? What if I read it against the grain in that way? And, you know, there's such minimal and frustrating traces. And I assume, you know, somebody's going to come along if they haven't already, very can be like, yeah, no, all these ways of reading these voices are completely wrong. That's part of the challenges of being a historian. I think not only a social historian, but just a, a historian in general. Yeah, I am curious to see how historians 100 years from now will rewrite history. They'll be facing new challenges. Yeah, I mean, how are they going to deal with the immensity if they can even access this digital data that we're leaving behind? But that's another question, right? There's a, there's a practical question of whether, you know, all of this documents will actually be preserved and, and how. Well, maybe this leaves us on another hopeful note. Yes, it does. Mira, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. And I really encourage all our listeners to read your wonderful book. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for this opportunity. And thanks to you for listening to this episode of Jewish History Matters. Geraldine, this was a really phenomenal conversation. I'm just you know, thrilled to be able to dive into these issues. 
Thank you so much, Jason. I really welcome the opportunity to discuss the book with Mary. I learned so much from the book and also from the conversation with him. Yeah, I mean, I think that, like you said, towards the beginning, there are so many issues that are going on here. But the two really critical ones have to do with this question of agency and choice. And also, um, which we'll get to in just a second, is this issue of how we understand migration and immigration. And I mean, I think that when we talk about sex work, when we talk about prostitution, there's often this common assumption that this is something that people don't choose to do. That the whole language of white slavery has embedded within it this, this idea that, that young women and girls are uh, sort of forced into it. Uh, and I think that, that part of what you're getting at here with the conversation with Mir was the way in which there is a large degree of choice, personal choice and agency that goes into this whole process. Absolutely. And the concept of white slavery really is, is a, it's a moral tale. And so what Mir's book is about is what happens when we take that element out of the story, when it's no longer a morality tale, but really a tale of um, the lack of economic opportunity and how do you operate in a world where economic opportunities are very limited and where sex work is not only a, an economic activity that is available to you, but is that can actually be quite lucrative. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess we can ask this question. So what do we learn from this, right? So when you're when you're talking about uh, looking at a category of work that is often placed in, in moral terms and understanding it in economic terms, what do we gain in terms of our understanding from taking this perspective? Well, I think that one thing that we gained that really came across in the conversation with Mir is that those morality tales are framed as um, an argument for helping a particular group of people. So in this case, it was, you know, prostitutes. But in reality, instead of, of helping them, it, one, criminalized them, and second, it actually made their fate worse. So even today, we see this today in how efforts to help sex workers actually criminalize them and makes their their work conditions worse and affects them directly. That's one of the important takeaway from Mir's book, that those issues are ongoing. And, and we see that today in, in the language of really criminalizing sex workers. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that this speaks to the power of this whole set of issues, that we can look at a particular case study uh, from a different country, from a different time period, and yet it resonates so powerfully with a lot of issues that you know, in 2020 uh, are still with us. You're talking about issues of immigration and migration. Well, this is a key political issue as we're going into the election. And the question of how immigrants are criminalized and how efforts to help immigrants actually hurt them, so to speak. Absolutely. And this story is not only about criminalizing immigrants, but it's also about racializing them. And there's also a very important gender component to this. Um, so Jewish immigrants in Buenos Aires were racialized in a way that was very gendered. So Jewish women were seen as dark, whereas the Jewish women were agents in, in sex work, but were seen as victims, were seen as white slaves. So it's interesting to think about race and gender together as it played out in this particular story and how it plays out today particularly in the, in the U.S. context. Right. So I think like one final set of issues here as we're thinking about you know, what are the big picture takeaways from the book and from your conversation with Mir is, you know, what do you think that this tells us uh, about the broader global history of migration, which of course is still an ongoing issue? I mean, I think what the book is about is about the anxieties that migration produces and how those anxieties play out in very real ways for migrants themselves. Yeah. I mean, I was really struck by your conversation about so-called good and bad immigrants. 
Right. I, I think we internalize this discourses. Even even people who see themselves as progressive have internalized many of the notions that are used today by the far right about good and bad immigrants. And so uh, it was really interesting to have this conversation with Mira and rethink our assumptions about who migrants are, what they do, and try to move away from moral terms. So I, I guess um, my question for you uh, is that especially as somebody uh, who is thinking in your own research about issues of migration and how people from one country or one society adapt to being in a new place uh, and then all those different issues. What do you think that we really gain from looking at cases like Mir's book and, and the things that you're looking at in your research as well as we try to understand this fundamental, ultimately political issue? And I guess this gets at this really central uh, an elemental question of you know, what is it that we as historians who deal with a lot of these issues in the context of the past, which are still with us, like what do we have to contribute here as we think about this conversation and these issues? What really stood out to me is that a lot of the things that we're seeing now are not new. And so I think what we have to contribute to the discussion is really showing that we are operating within discourses that we have inherited from the from the preceding generations about migrants, about different forms of migration, about what types of migration are acceptable and which ones aren't, and um, what immigrants can bring bring to the country. I mean, the anxieties that you're seeing today about bad hombres, immigrants, you know, stealing our women and bringing crime into the U.S., those are not new ideas. And I think in this particularly politicized context, we really need to take the historical context into consideration. Yeah, I think that's a really important thing for us to keep in mind, especially you know, in our current moment. So thank you again for this really great conversation, both right now and also with Mir. Thank you so much, Jason. And thanks to you for listening to this episode. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and thanks for listening to Jewish History Matters.